Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayden. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of April 7th, 2021. I am here with filmmaker Kath Tolentino. Hello. And editor-in-chief of No Film School, Ryan Kugler. Hey. Uh, Editor-in-chief of No Film School. <laughs> Sorry, I'm looking at the headline in front of me, and that was classic Monday. <laughs> Editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And we're going to be talking about why Ryan Coogler doesn't care about the Oscars. We're going to be talking about Knives Out getting like hundreds of millions of dollars for more Knives Out, which I am excited about. We've got uh, some autofocus talk in Tech Talk this week, and we've got all that and a kind of fun Ask No Film School that I didn't know the answer to and other people on the forums dropped it. And so I want to share it with everyone because I learned something and I love that because uh, learning is something that rhymes with learning and sharing is caring this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so our first topic this week, Ryan Coogler doesn't care about the Oscars, and that's amazing. So uh, Ryan Coogler was interviewed this week and basically was like, it is amazing that there are three African-American people nominated for Best Picture, you know, in producing categories this year, and that's great, but I don't really care about the Oscars. I care about unions, and I was like, oh, Ryan Coogler, like, I've, I've been a big Ryan Coogler fan for a decade, but like, yeah, exactly, like, the organizations we want to create and participate in and support or organizations that are about helping each other in specific. He was like, I'm, I'm interested in unions that help each other get healthcare. If you work in entertainment, chances are your healthcare is through your union. Like, and, and I'm not interested in organizations that put us in competition with each other. And I'm like, yes. And it is yet another great reminder that Oscars are great. If I'm ever lucky enough to be nominated, hooray. If I, 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 the company I ran produced a short film that got nominated. It was very exciting. Uh, My partners went to the ceremony. They said it was great. You only get four tickets for a short film and the two stars went and uh, hooray. Great. Exciting. If I'm ever invited to the Academy, I wouldn't say no. Like, why would you say no to those things? But like, it's a competition focused enterprise. It's about winning and beating each other. And it was created that way on purpose. Louis B. Mayer created the Academy Awards because when he went to build his beach house, it cost him more than he thought it should because the carpenters were starting to unionize in California in the 20s. Uh, filmmakers originally moved to California, not for the sunshine, because there's a film industry in Paris and a film industry in London. And we have artificial lights. They moved to California because it was non-union. There was the union stagehands in New York and and California's non-union, so they went for the cheap labor. And then by the 20s, they started the labor union started to organize California workers. Louis B. Mayer wanted to build a beach house. It cost more than he wanted it to. And so he created the Academy Awards to be like, oh, you know, if they're competing with each other after these like little statues we're gonna give out, it's gonna make them less likely to cooperate, which is a savvy move. Like respect, like evil but smart. And uh, so, you know, I'm not interested in anything that makes us feel like we have to compete against each other. And it made me so happy to see that Ryan Coogler is not interested either. Yeah. I like Ryan Coogler. Uh, I mean, I don't, he's not making my favorite movies in the world, but that's really neither here nor there. I think he's good. And I really like what he said about this. And I like you, Charles, everybody listens a lot or knows me knows that I'm kind of a not big on the Oscars guy to put it mildly. But um, I get why it exists. It's great for PR. It's great for ratings. It does a lot to pump up things. And, you know, I I put a line that I thought you would like, Charles, in that article that in my write up of it, 
because it references a quote you like to use that I think is attributed to Theodore Roosevelt. I saw that and I wondered if that was, yeah. (laughs) The quote goes that uh, comparison is the thief of joy. And I love that quote because isn't the joy of making movies or creating things that they don't, that it's not, I like sports, sports are a separate thing, but there is an, an empirical data, there's evidence, there's an outcome, there's a winner and a loser, and that's part of it. And you, you manage that kind of thing in, if you're you know, in its own arena, no pun intended. But if you're talking about art and expression, it really doesn't work to compare it in terms of a win or a loss. You could compare it in terms of a box office number, but what it's like what we're talking about is always with awards is a, is a small number of people, a subjective a decision, often people who don't necessarily watch all the films involved and have various motivations. And it's not, it's just the problem with it is the culture around it that it means that something is the best. Yeah. The other thing that it involves is like massive PR campaigns. Like, I don't think people realize how much the Oscars is like running a political campaign in terms of how much money it costs, like how, you know, it's essentially who has the deepest pockets. And obviously you have to make a good film as well. But, you know, like I said, when there have been some really, really, (laughs) I mean, do I got to bring up Crash again? (laughs) No, I mean, I think you have to make a film that fits within a certain you have to come through certain avenues. Sometimes there's a shocker Cinderella story, you know, but but I was going to say, you know, who's really, really, really good at, at, at Oscar campaigns was Harvey Weinstein. I was just thinking about his Shakespeare in Love <laughs> campaign and how much of an I mean, upset just, that was. He wrote the book on how to sneak in there and dominate. Yeah. And, you know, what, what you whatever you thought of him then, you certainly know what to think of him now. But there's, I mean, look, there's, there's, I'll just say there's a great article on Vanity Fair all about like how Harvey Weinstein just bankrolled that competition and Shakespeare in Love should not have won, except that he was like a horrible bully uh, with really, really deep pockets. And yeah, I mean, that is the definition of killjoy. Like this is not about a, a movie delighting audiences worldwide and thus being deserving of a best picture uh, win. It's like, Someone getting in there and playing dirty, you know. As so often things end up being, like there are very few real like like meritocracies. There are very few places where the best blank wins. Um, there are some. You can find them. But anyway, uh, yeah, I love what Kugler said. I love that. Look, there's another take that I like that's just coming out of what you said, Kath, which is that if people knew how much money was being spent on just campaigning, the movies like if the average person at home who knows about the oscars or talks about what won best picture and if it was really good knew how much money was just being spent campaigning these things now not being spent making a movie mind you that anyone gets to see just campaigning if you knew how much free junk the people who go get who don't need it anyway because they're all already obscenely wealthy or many of them are it's just insulting on some level (laughs) like so it's like I get it. It's part of the machine that that promotes movies. So there's another side, which is like, okay, there's going to be a list of Best Picture nominees. And that means X amount of movies may get seen by people who didn't know. Maybe Nomadland uh, and Chloe Zhao are going to be things people are talking about. And that's great. There's good things that come out of it. But I just think on, on the whole, there's so much not to like about it. And there's so much to like about what Ryan Coogler said. 
he also added another aspect to his points beyond just the like let's put our energy into helping one another which was like yeah it's a super diverse year but like so what like he and he really goes back to like how much does that move the needle and how long has that and it's not my place to get into that obviously because i'm a white cisgendered male but like from his perspective it was interesting to hear the what about this still doesn't still falls short for him um as a black filmmaker and i was curious i was interested to read about that aspect of this yeah nobody wants to touch that one (laughs) i was still thinking about something which is like the concept of what fighting dirty even means. Cause at one point, Kathy, you were like, well, and, or maybe it was George who was like, and the willingness to fight dirty. And it's like the point, of, like there is no, I mean, short of killing people, there's nothing that is actually dirty fighting in an Oscar campaign. Cause there are no rules. Like there's like conventions and habits and like, Oh, we wouldn't do that. But it's like, other than breaking the law, everything is fair game in an Oscars fight because the point is the fight. Right. The point shouldn't be the fight. The point should be, Artistic merit, which I guess, you know, is sort of counterintuitive because, like we said, you can't say this film is the best out of this group. But the point shouldn't be a fight. <laughs> well, no, th- beyond that, the point should be everybody, if you took all that money for that got spent on the Oscars campaign and just gave everyone in the crew a bonus, <laughs> like, 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 it's all deliberately wasting energy. It is like... It was set up to waste people's time. <laughs> Let me add the two things I want to mention, though. Like, there is an aspect of this that fans enjoy. So there is an aspect of this that, and I'm not really, but 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 when I was a kid, I liked it, actually. And I'm not saying it's for kids or it's juvenile. I'm just saying, like, before I spent a lot of time around the industry, I guess. But there is an aspect of this that people enjoy, just that it's fun. It's a fun event to watch. They like the gowns and stuff. And I'm not putting it down. There is another side of this, which is that would you guys, do you guys ever look at what makes the most money at the box office and consider that some sort of evidence of success? I'm most curious what people think of that. Like in terms of a winner, say, do you ever look at something that like tops the box office, like the movies on the top of those lists and think, wow, good, those movies dominated, like they want something. Well, for the most part, no. And then it's also worth noting that, like, those movies also have a huge PR campaign behind them. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just, it's all a money game, you guys. <sighs> okay, yeah, that's a good point. But within a certain league, the same amount of money, let's say, or a similar amount of money is being spent on a certain class of film, and some of them connect. So do you ever think, like, you know, <sighs> E.T., like, or or Jurassic Park or um, Avatar. I mean, and there's always caveats. But so I guess the answer for you is no, Kath. What about you, Charles? Do you ever look at it and think, wow, that movie made so much money. It must have. It's good. It won something. It's winning at something. No. Oh, my God. No. Yeah. So I <laughs> so what I think I what I'm what I'm trying to say is like, is there any way in which like if a movie wins a ton of critics choice awards like just through critical acclaim if it's got do you ever look what is it there is for no either way to objectively measure art that's the fun of sports the fun of sports is like whoa that lady ran faster than that lady like objectively and then you get into the drama of like doping and all that and that gets complicated but like <laughs> the the joy of sports 
is objectivity. That's the that's the fun. Is like, oh, we can measure this. Whoa, you really shot seventy eight baskets in that game. That's amazing. There is no objectivity in like it's not Critics Choice Awards. It's not IMDb rating. It's not anything. It's just like. I still love the movie Blow. Wait, wait, but is it Rotten Tomatoes score? It is Rotten Tomatoes score. score? Like, no one can tell me that Blow's not a good movie, (laughs) even though all the critics hated it, all my friends hate it. I don't know why they all hate it. Blow is great. And like, (laughs) I'm like, that's it. I can- I I, I feel the same way about Lucy in the Sky, man. I will like die on that hill. I was so- The Julie Taymor movie? Lucy in the Sky with uh, Natalie Portman. She was the astronaut that like drives cross country to kidnap her ex boyfriend, who's played by John. Oh, Hamm. the diaper, the diaper story. story. Yeah. You know why people hated it? Because there weren't any diapers. But this the movie was amazing. But like its Rotten Tomatoes score is something like thirty seven or something. Twenty one percent Rotten Tomatoes, thirty six percent Metacritic, four point eight IMDb. It is a wildly are, hated they are movie. All wrong. But, They're all wrong. That's the beauty of cinema. I love this cinema. because. Th- Yes, this is what I was trying to tease, I think. And, and well, I wasn't sure what you guys were going to say, to be honest, but I'm glad that we landed here. And I'm glad I asked the question because I'm thinking about our audience and I'm thinking about film goers in general. And there often seems to be this weird struggle we have with movies and television where we try to pick bests and greatest. We try to do lists. We try to do awards. We try to and, or winning or greatness or any of that. And I mean, we all fall into the trap. I do it all the time on text threads with friends where I talk about why Billy Wilder is probably the greatest director of all time. What a weird, silly thing to engage in when it's not like, like you said, so eloquently Charles Sports, where there is a measurable thing. And additionally, Kath bringing up the idea of like, there's, or and Charles too, each of you picking a movie you love that people don't love, but that you believe is great is the beauty of what it is like you said it's the beauty of movies is like you can say like hey i just i fucking love that movie i don't care if it's bad boring whatever to other people like i love it i think that we've stumbled upon and into what is so frustrating maybe about the oscars which is just that even like making a list of of greats from the year is a little hard because we should all be trying to find seek out and explore the individual expressions in the industry that in the artistic side of it that we love and we want to share with one another and, and and not have it have to hold it up to a it's great and it checks off all the boxes and it's the best. And I think what you're what I think what we're getting towards here is like realizing, you know, the power of the Oscars is not about uh, is not about naming a winner. It's about bringing visibility to certain people, certain projects, and certain voices, and so it, yep, it, it upside, is a sure. political tool. And it can its its benefit is that it can be well benefit. You know, it's a double edged sword or whatever, but it can be used as a political tool. Like when when Moonlight won, that was such a huge moment because of what it meant for people of color because of because of the representation of of black people on screen, and. I, I love Ryan Coogler's take here because it's so true that like we have such a long way to go. The Academy Awards have just been so disappointing in in so many ways, but um, but that's but that's why people get so worked up about it is because it has the ability to like make your name or make your movie a household name. My mom does not watch a lot of movies. She's Asian American. She saw that Parasite won, and that it was a Korean film. 
And she was like, wow, this is so cool. Like, Catherine, what do you think? Would I like it? She's like, not a violent film person at all. She's like, is it family? She's like, is it, it's a family friendly movie, right? I'm like, no, 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 no. But like, she, was, she was talking about it, and she doesn't, you know, she the only movies she watches are Jane Austen movies. But now she is aware of it, and she is glad that a Korean movie won, and she wants to see more Asian films and Asian American films getting that kind of recognition. And as much as I like to trash the start of the Oscars as being a deliberate political ploy, which probably means I'll never get nominated because they'll find this podcast and play it back to me. The the truth of the matter is like why something is built in the first place matters for historical context, but it's more interesting. What can we do with it now? America was started over not wanting to pay George King George taxes and they made it this democracy, but also didn't count black people as full citizens. And, and so we fixed it and we're going to keep trying to fix it. Like, yeah, women didn't get the right to vote for like 120 years. We're going to keep trying to fix it and improve it. And like maybe there will come a time where we should just start over from scratch in America. But like a lot of people will die when that happens and it's going to be tough. And like getting rid of the Academy Awards now will be hard. So like can we just keep trying to fix it and improve it and push it in the more interesting direction? And yeah, like because it has this cultural cachet, using it to get people who would normally not watch Parasite to watch Parasite, using it to get people who would normally not watch Moonlight to go see Moonlight, like – that's a great thing to do with the Academy Awards. It's an amazing thing to do with the Academy Awards. And I love that that seems to be where the Academy Awards is going. That are like, hey, everybody, here are some amazing movies that might not. Like, would certainly, Moonlight would not have won in 1988, probably. But yeah. it did in 2016. Or been made, but yeah. 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 <laughs> but that's a whole other story. But yeah. All right. Our next subject. Netflix is lining up a $400 million two-picture deal for Knives Out 2 and 3. And we don't usually do a lot of deal talk on this podcast because it's like an independent film podcast where we're talking about, you know, bringing light to little projects that you might not have seen otherwise and whatnot. And a $400 million deal is usually not relevant to us. But man, I've been thinking a lot about this lately and how excited I am about it, but also about what all the implications are involved in how this worked. So for context, Ryan Johnson, who made a very good Star Wars movie, but also a whole bunch of other good movies, including a little movie called Brick, which was his like half million dollar independent film, which launched his career and shot on 35 millimeter, even though it was only a half million dollar budget, did a film called Knives Out uh, for $40 million. That was great. I'm a big fan. I thought it worked. $40 million for the first film. And it made $311 million and then did an open bid and was like, all right, I'm, I've got these two more I want to do in this series. Um, who who wants to make them with me in a way that like gives him the power, him and his producing partner? And Netflix is going to give $400 million for Knives Out 2 and 3. So what's interesting about this, and I haven't found any details on it, but I wanted to talk about it as you thought about it, is that it is the rare franchise film where, first off, we're watching a new franchise attempt to get born. And people try and do this all the time, right? Like Will Smith tried to give his son a franchise with that Another Earth movie 10 years ago that was like going to then turn into like four movies and comic. Like people are always trying to launch franchises because that's how you get the George Lucas money. But we're actually watching, <laughs> you know, it's been a while since we've seen a one get a two and a three. It's been a minute. Like, you know, we're 20 years into the Fast franchise 
we're 25 years into the matrix. Like there's not a lot of like newer franchises. And what's particularly interesting is it's a franchise in a genre that we haven't seen in a while, which is the murder mystery. It's a franchise built around building an iconic detective, which is Daniel Craig, who is not from America doing a sort of foghorn leghorn adjacent Southern accent as an American detective. It is delightful. I like the idea of him as the basis of this, but I wonder how much he is making because he's Bond. A lot. And yeah, but also like, did Ryan Johnson go to him? I mean, this is the part where it becomes relevant to filmmakers, right? It's like, did Ryan Johnson go to him ahead of time and say, I'm going to do two more movies. Let's do you want a percent? Like that conversation of like, I'm going to put it out to open bid. Like what's your minimum and what's your percentage? Like, my guess is he's getting more than 10% of that 40, 400 million. I don't know. Someone knows. Well, this is, yeah, this is what's so interesting about this. And all my friends in the industry, which runs a gamut of pipes from creative exec to, you know, people who make deals like lawyers and everybody was like, holy crap, that was like a really cheap movie compared to that amount of money they just secured from Netflix, right? Like it's not a cheap movie by standards of movies in, that are made every year, but that's a crazy number for the two movies. And one assumes, like you said, that part of that is like the franchise, like that they're going to knives out expanded universe that's coming to Netflix. But I just think, yeah, there must be a ton because they're not like, in theory, they're not these super expensive movies to make, unless the plan is to continue to have them be like star-studded and to pay bigger rates for the stars. I assume a lot of those stars were taking a lot less the first time around, obviously. Daniel Craig's kind of post-Bond icon role that he's slipping into and just getting a massive payday. Like It just seems like a massive payday um, for the for the creatives involved, which is great to see like if you i mean those people had already won the filmmaking lottery i think we can all agree but they won it again in terms of how much money you can make in this industry one of the biggest ways to make the most money used to be like television because like the kind of money that like a jerry seinfeld makes or that like somebody who's a regular on a hit network show in the 90s like maybe the aughts would have been the last era of that that money is not coming through those channels anymore. And they make a lot more than movie stars because residuals and 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 uh, reruns and everything, syndication. So if you're thinking about like from the stat from the stat standpoint, Ryan Johnson like kind of secured the bag, so to speak, with Netflix in a way that a filmmaker like him might have a really hard time doing that at that level. And we're talking about like we're we're like now I'm really like in the weeds about like how rich these rich people get and how. But I'm still amazed that Netflix would pay that much money for it. I I wonder strategically without knowing anything. This is not based on anything I've been told. If Netflix is sort of trying to make it a tougher market for some of their competitors because that might price some people out of that type of content if they're willing to go that high. You know, Disney's Disney Plus is going to have its they're they're loaded on franchise. They're franchise rich. So Netflix might be just trying to like plant their flag in something like that. But I mean, how does this affect the average filmmaker 
at our at, at the at a level closer to you know regular old. I mean, I think it's it's good that there are places like Netflix willing to spend this kind of money because it means that the industry can continue to thrive and there's a lot of projects and they obviously know based on their proprietary data how well this is going to do, I guess. First of all, I got to say I am very very ready for the Lakeith Stanfield spin-off franchise. Ooh. Like I will I will tune in for that. I'm not super psyched about Knives Out 2 and 3, but I've always been a huge Ryan Johnson fan ever since Brick um, recently saw his USC thesis film as well. I forget how. I guess it was on YouTube or something like that. And I think he's such a great, I wouldn't necessarily say like model for like how to think about your career as, as a young filmmaker because Brian Johnson has had incredible success. But it has been so cool to see him jump from, you know, USC thesis film to Brick to Brothers Bloom to Looper to Star Wars to this. And I would love, like, let's get him on the podcast and just talk with him about, like, each each sort of step of the way, you know, how he was able to keep getting bigger um, and land bigger deals. I, I really admire his career path, even though I don't love every movie that he's made. I can't think of anyone where I love every single movie they've ever made. Like, if you're making things that people truly love, you're pushing yourself far enough outside the safe that sometimes you're going to flop. If every single one of your movies is like a paint by numbers perfection of fulfills every rule and save the cat and like whatnot, like your movies will lack like heart. And so like, yeah, there's no one out there where I'm like, everything works. That's And that's one of the things that I love about Ryan Johnson too, is that you can tell from all the movies that he's made that he is really enjoying the process and he's playing and he's trying things out and he channels his his deep passion for movies into into everything that he makes and you can see that on the screen even if like like looper looper was good looper wasn't like amazing you know there were holes in it um but the fact that he was daring enough to like try and write that and and get it made and put his heart and soul into it that's what's that's what i love about him as a filmmaker you know i i this is you bring up an interesting point for me because what I think, and this is one of the things I love about No Film School and our kind of mission statement, is that I don't love any Ryan Johnson movie that I've seen. And I haven't seen them all, but I don't love any of them. But I do love him. I mean, like, I don't know him personally. But <laughs> but like, I think he's cool. I think he's approaching everything the right way. I love his approach. I love the projects he chooses and the way he approaches them and the way he tackles things and the stuff he tries to do. And I wish him all success. And I think he's a great model in a lot of ways. Like you said, I think his, how he's managed to navigate creating a brand and a career in a time where your jumps are the way they are these days is admirable. And, you know, but I mean, there's always a lot of luck involved, but I think that he's, I'm a fan of him without like ever seeing a movie he made where I was just like, Oh man. Whereas sometimes you see a movie you love and you're like, yeah, but the people, the guy who directed it or, or the person who directed it is, is like a dick or whatever. And I guess bringing back to you know, film school is like, we try not to be so much about the like, is it good? Do we like it? That's sort of been the theme today. Is it like success or failure measurements? But like, rather, how did it happen? What's what's the process? What's the motivation behind it? What's the approach to to the craft and the career? And I think he has a great one in those in those areas. And I guess I'd be curious... Do you guys feel in some way, this is a question I'm asking you because I've heard it talked about in circles in the in the biz, 
Do you guys feel in some way annoyed that Netflix is spending this kind of money on this project? Or do you think that's a win? Annoyed? That's an odd... Like, annoyed implies that... I feel like if you're talking to anyone who's annoyed, it's because they've been in negotiations with Netflix for something lately and wasn't able to meet a number they wanted. Like, hmm. if I had just pitched something to Netflix, which I, I never have because that I, I just haven't, but if I had... And they were like, no, thank you, or do it for half as much. Yeah, I, I could see, I guess, why that would be annoying. Right, but, right. like, look, it's not my job to figure out Netflix's business model. Netflix makes a ton in subscriptions. I hear that they have debt that's far out of proportion with reality, but, like, their debt's not my business. And I don't really care about their debt. And, like, so I'm not annoyed. I'm just like, oh, I, I'm curious to see what happens when we have two murder mysteries with Daniel Craig. And you know what? I bet they keep Lakeith around just because sometimes you do have a repeat cop and it would be fun. Apparently the next one's in Greece. And I really like the idea of a Boston cop in Greece working with. So like, I hope Lakeith uh, Stanfield continues to be part of the series. He would be super fun. I felt like he was underused in the first one. I know that was was so frustrating about. Yeah. I was like this. Well, he's emerged. Hasn't he really? No, he was already already, charismatic on Earth. Yeah, he was already amazing. (laughs) He was already amazing. He deserved so much more in the first Knives Out. Okay, but there's a difference. There's a difference between the talent always having been there and the powers that be recognizing that the that the audience is responding to the talent. I mean, it was. I mean, like, I think it wasn't. It's not just. It's it's also that that particular role he was playing. I was like, that character could have done more in the plot. And you have Lakeith Stanfield. It really, yeah. It really felt like it was like, oh, we need a black guy in this movie. Let's put Lakeith in and just give him a couple lines. That's what it felt like. And I don't know what the story is there, but that is kind of why, one of the reasons why I went away from Knives Out with a bad taste in my mouth, because Lakeith could have been the star of that movie. And instead it's about Daniel Craig and like, he's fine. But Lakeith is great. You know, I was bummed about that. And That's he, a fair I, criticism. I, like he better be in in films two and three, or else I'll have a bone to pick. He's gonna be busy though. Yeah, because he's he just got nominated. He's, so, he's like, he he might yeah he's gonna he might be too busy to show up. He might show up in a Zoom call um, because <laughs> he can make from uh, the set of another movie. He I don't know if he'll have time to wander around rural Greece. I can't even. I can't imagine when you're in the place he is right now. Like there, I assume there's just a lot to choose from, and you have to be very. You have to have a very strategic yeah. approach to what you do. I, I I did just want to quickly say about Ryan Johnson that I you know he's had this great, incredible, admirable career trajectory. We don't love all his films, but it's still really cool to see everything that he's done. Some of it is luck, and I think also I, I met him once at a screening after I saw like a preview screening of Knives Out and he was doing a Q&A afterwards. It was like a pretty small preview screening for like film students in uh, in New York City. He stuck around afterwards just to chat with each of us. And there was a long line of people that wanted to talk to him. He stayed around till the very end. And with every single person, he was like super just like present and there for us. And I went up to him and I was like, yeah, I'm working on my thesis film right now. He's like, oh my gosh, tell me about that. You know, how's it going for you? He was genuinely interested in me despite not knowing me at all. And I think that that kind of personality is rare in Hollywood and can really be a benefit. 
Well, now I'm thrilled that he got this deal. And now I want to watch more of the movies I haven't seen to see if I do love one of them. Because I always want to root for a good guy. Yeah, he is a good guy. So this reminds me, my first ever job in film was in marketing. I worked in marketing at Landmark Theaters, which before Mark Cuban owned it, I think. I mean, I was too young to even care who owned the theater chain at the time. This was like the year 2000. But it was like a very interesting job. And I remember learning a lot from a woman named Marina Price that in retrospect seems like a character being played by Tilda Swinton. I'm like, looking back, I'm like, was that (laughs) Tilda Swinton doing research? Like if I'd pulled off uh, her wig, was that Tilda Swinton? And one of the things she said to me (laughs) that was fascinating is like directors were always coming in to promote their movies. And like after the third or fourth director, I was, I said something about like, wow, they're all so like interested in talking to you. And she was like, oh, oh yeah. All the directors are great because they're just hungry for human connection and they just want to know people's stories because it's all part of their work. So the good directors are all wonderful. And it was this interesting thing. And like, you know, I only worked in marketing for like six months or whatever, but she was really right that like a lot of the people who ended up making movies that I really liked would just spend like, I I mean, I spent like 20 minutes talking to the director of The Fast Runner, which is a great movie from the 90s, you know, when he clearly had other things he should have been doing on the press tour for for The Fast Runner. But like, yeah, there is something about directing that does involve like a real curiosity about the human beings around you that I think shows up well in your work for some filmmakers. So this week's Tech Talk is not really news because the technology has been around for a while. But if you've been on the No Film School site this week, you've probably noticed that there's been a lot of content around Sony and autofocus. So we wanted to talk about autofocus a little bit this week because it's been coming up a lot conversationally in the last couple of years. Autofocus as a thing. So, you know, most of you probably know that until very recently, filmmakers were like, never use autofocus. And the reason why is autofocus tends to hunt. So, like, you know, if you were doing like a deliberate fake 90s video effect, autofocus like used to until very recently, like it would like find its focus and then it would get nervous and be like, is this really in focus? And it would like throw it out of focus and throw it back in focus to like be sure that it had found the right focus. Like autofocus was very nervous before. And it would call a lot of attention to yourself. So you never used autofocus in motion pictures until very, very recently. Because, you know, you'd have a dedicated focus puller. They'd be sitting there with their little hand on the focus knob or like on a wireless thing, they'd be at the monitor. But in the last couple of years, that's changed. And we wanted to talk about why. Because I realized I keep mentioning it and we never talk about why. And the real reason why is that a couple of technologies are coming together all at once. And those technologies coming together all at once are making autofocus better. And the first thing to know about is what's called phase detect autofocus, PDAF, PDAF. And it's technology that's built into the sensor. So this isn't something that like you can add PDAF. You can't take your, your old camera in and get PDAF added. Like it's, it's part of the sensor design. Now, it used to be a separate layer and we'll ignore that, that pays attention to the phase that the light is in as it lands on the sensor and can identify from the phase of the light whether or not something is in focus. So by comparing like the phase of light coming in at various angles and on various pixels, it can tell if something is in focus or not really, really, really quickly. So that's phase detect autofocus. And that's the new technology that's been showing up lately. But then you might have seen, if you're like reading the camera specs, thinking about buying a camera, 
you might have seen something called hybrid autofocus and you were like, what the hell is going on there? Hybrid autofocus uses PDAF, phase detection, and it uses the older technology, contrast detection, which is when you think about that older like hunt around focus that we used to see, that was contrast detection. It's just looking like, because if you've noticed, like when something is sharp and in focus, it's more contrasty. And as it goes out of focus, the contrast also lowers. So it's looking for contrast. And so what hybrid autofocus does is it uses PDAF to give you like the big range of focus, like to find the face. And then contrast detection gets that like final bit there. And so the, those two technologies work together to identify when something is sharp in frame. And then the other thing that came in is cell phones got really, really good. And as cell phones got really, really good, amazing processing got smaller and smaller and smaller. And we started to have cameras that could face detect. And now we even, in the last year or two, eye detection has really come on strong. Um, the big cameras for this are obviously the Sony cameras, where like legitimately you can like point to an eye and then a little dot will appear on that eye in your frame and it will follow that eye around and keep it in focus. And so we just wanted to take a second in tech talk to like, you know, to give a breakdown of some of the basics of autofocus that are going on now because it's yeah changing the way we shoot. Like I know a couple people now who've gone out on FX9 shoots and they come back and they're like, oh, it's just always in focus. You just think about it differently now, which so is basically. Nuts. Robots are taking over our jobs. First ACs will never work again. Uh, <laughs> no. So <laughs> what's funny about that is that's kind of what I, when I first started hearing about the tech and first started hearing people talk about it, that's where my mind went. But what I've heard often is that pulling focus is still not something you necessarily want to rely on it for. Right, Charles? So this isn't going to replace yet anybody on the big jobs. So like. You know, if you're like, oh, I want to rack focus between, I always think about the Sopranos for this, you know, like Tony's in the driver's seat and then the FBI guys in the passenger seat and you want to rack focus between the two of them. You still need a human being to do that. Any big show with a proper crew, there will still be a human focus puller. What this really is about is smaller one mule team jobs, which like we all do sometimes where it's like, okay, it's a three camera job and we have money for three operators and all three operators are going to pull their own focus. Those like tiny little jobs. It's about making those jobs less of a nightmare. And, you know, like I've been doing a couple weird little food things lately where it's like three operators and like, you know, I remember operating some of those jobs when I was first out of film school. I'm not operating on this one. I'm just uh, like field producing, I guess. And like, I remember sweating the focus so much back then because I'd be out like in like, or what about docs? Charles? Yeah, docs. Like, what about docs? Yeah. When you're out yeah. and it's like your, your doc crew is a director, a sound person and a camera person. The camera person can spend more time watching what's happening in front of the lens and thinking about light and framing and less time worrying about focus. And that's where it's interesting. Now, that being said, are robots going to change the way our career works? Absolutely. I did that review last year of Color Lab AI. And like Color Lab AI is going to change grading an independent feature from five days to one day. And you still need to color the indie feature. You still want a colorist doing it. But like... You know, that one colorist that used to do like 40 features a year because he would spend a week on each one or like, let's go a step up. She would spend two weeks on each one so she could do 26 a year because she was really good and she wanted to take her time and she wanted two weeks. That colorist who used to spend two weeks on a feature could now do that same feature in two or three days, which means that same hot colorist could now do 80 features instead of 20 a year 
which changes the market. She'll make exactly the same. There are three other colorists who won't work at all because of the work being taken by that one colorist. And like that's change. The industry is absolutely going to change because of automation. And as much as I, I don't think we're near a, a robot's just going to color a movie. I do think we're getting really close to the time we estimate things will take changing. And that's huge. I think you have to always remember, I don't feel wise enough to really make this statement with authority, but I do feel like what I've observed is that there is always like emerging tech that feels kind of like robots are taking our jobs a little bit. And yet there's always like kind of new jobs that crop up along around them. That's sort of what that's like my glass half full version of it is like there may be roles that don't exist or particular aspects of roles that change around monitoring the thing that's different. Like, I guess this is a bad, maybe a bad example, but I'm just going to go with it. When film phases out, you don't have a loader anymore, but you have a different job. You have like a DIT. So I think that there's always, there's, there's shifts that take place. And with the democratization of the medium, you know, it becomes sort of like, we could have been very scared and worried about like, whoa, like everyone's going to be shooting stuff. Like what's going to happen? Good things, bad things. And in some ways, nothing really changes. You know, like like with film, it was like hard to get your hands on it. It meant this, that, and the other thing to, to shoot it and to develop it and blah, blah, blah. And, and yet like, you know, now and now everybody has like powerful cameras in their pockets and such, but there's still like good DPs are good DPs. Good lighting is good lighting. Like, and I think that that I want to promote also an interview for this week that's related to Sony and focus with the DP that I did named Nancy Schreiber that'll, that'll, that's up already. And she talks a lot about being a DP through the nineties as, as video came along and she actually won an award for shooting on mini DV at Sundance. So like there's, there's ways you can use whatever the emergent tech is or medium to excel, to be an artist. And so I just think I agree. It's there is something about the autofocus thing where it's like, oh, so focus now is just like the computer will handle it. But I do think there will be things that maybe we can't even predict yet that come alongside that are like, well, now that the camera op is doing all this and not worrying about focus, maybe we need somebody who does this and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the more likely scenario is that we'll just see more content created. Like instead of one exactly. movie with yes. 10 people in the crew, we'll see two movies with five people in the crew or it could mean that the, that the person who might've been the AC on blank doc is now shooting their own doc. Exactly. Right. It could mean that. I don't know who knows, but that's exactly like one potential side thing is like more people will just be out shooting great images. So then it'll be more about what are your ideas? Like, and maybe that's, good and maybe that's bad. I don't know, but that's that's a cool... There's a lot of things we can't predict. So not being able to predict doesn't necessarily mean it's scary. It could mean it's exciting. Could mean both. All right. And then our last thing this week on Ask No Film School, Kesu Unathan asks, this is a beginner question. Why are some movie cameras set to 172.8 degrees shutters instead of 180 degree? And I didn't know the answer. And then other people on the forum answered and I wanted to share their answer. So first off to understand the question, 180 degree shutter, the shutter would be open half the time 
and closed half the time. 180 degrees is half of 360 degrees. And that was the standard for shutter angles forever. Um, so when I saw the question, I was like, I've never really worked with a camera that is by default set to 172.8, which is- Can you tell everybody why? Can you Can you do a little more of a background? Oh, sure. So basically there was a spinning mirror in front of your film. And when the mirror was in front of your film, you would get to see an image through your viewfinder. And then half of the circular mirror would be empty. There'd be nothing there and light would go through onto the shutter. And you needed that because you didn't want light hitting the film when the film was moving. Because other then you'd get this like blurry, streaky image. Sometimes you'd do it deliberately in music videos. But for the most part, when the film moves, you don't want any light on it. And then when the film's held still, you want the shutter open, letting light into it. To expose, to expose the, frame. the frame. Yeah. And uh, you could adjust a shutter to like 45 degrees, which would mean it would be open for a very small amount of time. So you'd get like this crisper, sharp, sharper strobier image. You see some of that in uh, Saving Private Ryan famously used a 45 degree shutter for a bunch of stuff that gives you this like very stroby kind of crisp effect. But 180 was the default. Panavision made some cameras that would do 220 because that would give you like a third of an extra stop of light and a little bit of gentler motion blur. But I'd never worked with a camera that came by default 172.8, but I forgot that all of the, I've shot internationally, but only on video. On every film job I've ever done was in the United States. In the United States, we use a 60 hertz power cycle. And at a 60 hertz power cycle, you get no flicker at 180 degree shutter. So every camera prep I've ever done, the camera's being handed to me set to 180. However, if you live in a 50 hertz country where your power is coming through the wall at 50 hertz, it'll flicker on a 180 degree shutter, which is why uh, countries that have 50 hertz power will default to 172.8 degree shutter when they hand you the camera at camera prep so that your images do not flicker when you are shooting lights on local power, which is something that like, because I'd never done a camera prep in a 50 hertz country, I did not know. Now, if you did not know why we used 50 hertz power, it's because people are stubborn. The original power specification designed by Tesla and Edison was for 220 volt, 60 hertz power. However, 60 hertz does not easily go into the metric system. And so German power companies were like, we'll just do 50 hertz because that's like a nicer number that like, fits more, feels more metric than 60. Even though at 50 hertz, you can see flicker in streetlights. They did 50 because it felt better. Uh, it should be 60. 60 was like, they did a bunch of tests when they're inventing electricity. And they're like, oh, when you go to 60 hertz, you can't see flicker in streetlights. And so we should do 60 hertz. But 60 doesn't fit in the metric system. And that's why a lot of countries have 50. Mind blown. All right. <laughs> Ask No Film School. I'm Charles Hain. I'm on the internet at Charles Hain on Twitter and Instagram and on my website, charleshain.com, H-A-I-N-E. And I'm Kath Tolentino. I'm a filmmaker. Uh, you can follow my production company, Border Woman Pictures, on Instagram at B-O-R-D-E-R, woman.pictures. I also run a uh, Bay Area short film showcase for those of you that are in the Bay Area called Bay Made Films. So you can find us on Instagram at Bay Made, B-A-Y-M-A-D-E Films. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find all the things we talked about here today and more at nofilmschool.com. You can follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram. We're up on the gram and doing stuff and it's only going to get better. I promise. I saw that. I was so excited. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's fun. We should do more. We're going to do more, but uh, it's long and it's so, it's the Instagram. We've been on Instagram for a long time, folks. It's not that we just got there. We're not that out of, it's just, we haven't been using it. Soon we'll be on the TikTok, you know, what the kids use. Anyway, um, this is Focus Week at No Film School. We are doing all kinds of cool stuff about Focus and the Sonys that have really, like we talked about, done a lot with autofocus lately. There's a lot of cool content on that. Plus, there's all kinds of news and other great stuff. But be sure to check it out. Check out the interview with Nancy Schreiber. She's a DP who has been in this business for a long time, and she has a lot of cool stories. Thanks so much for listening. 